Hey, you, you're listening to Sloancast, the one-stop shop deep dive where we discuss anything and everything about the greatest band of all time. Andrew Scott, Jay Ferguson, Chris Murphy, and Patrick Penlin, collectively known as Sloan. We are your fellow superfan hosts. I'm Rob. This is Ken. Ken, how are you doing, man? I'm fantastic. Rob, one of my favorite things about this podcast is not just goofing out, you know, with you for hours on end about our Sloan nerd musings about the greatest band of all time, but it's also, you know, getting to know people within the community and sort of the adjacent community, the, the music scene. And I think that for me, it's always a highlight when we have people from other bands on this podcast. And in this case, you know, we have someone who I think all of our Canadian listeners will be familiar with at the very least. Craig Northey, welcome to Sloancast. Hey, nice to see you, Ken, Rob. Hey, Great thanks for being you. here, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had uh, I, I did want to mention off the top, I was going to do a quick little intro, but uh, uh, I was going to say, and then Ken stole my thunder and introduced you right away. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, uh, you know, from the wonderful odds, plays with Stephen mm-hmm. Page, obviously joins Murph in the Trans-Canada high, high, Highwaymen. See, that's why I, he did it and I didn't, because I started a bit there. But I wanted to say, mm-hmm. there's a new album coming out. Crash the Time Machine, great title, by the way, um, with the aforementioned odds. It's available August 4th. Uh, please welcome once again to the show the lovely and eternally cool Craig Northey. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you. Two for intros. Me. I think I think that's the first time we've done two intros for a guest. Uh, so I, thank you for I think you got you got the message from management saying he needs <laughs> two intros. He's that old. <laughs> two intros where he walks. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, actually, I, I was legit when I said I love the title. Um, what we do on our show is we all the time get in the time machine and sometimes crash it, uh, but uh, and go back in time and talk about you know the history of this band and how they intersect with the other luminaries in the, in the music scene and so on. And so obviously you fit right into that like a glove. Uh, thank you again for being here. And uh, we might as well just start off, if you don't mind, uh, you know, sharing a bit about yourself, maybe getting in the time machine a bit, um, sort of for the uninitiated, uh, you know, where, where you came from and perhaps some early musical memories, how you got interested in music and started playing in bands and so on. Oh, okay. Well, I'm from out west. I'm a Vancouverite. And uh, I, my musical journey, I moved around a bunch as a kid, mostly around here, a bit in Oregon, but mostly in BC towns. And I started my musical journey in Victoria, BC at about the age of four. My my mom my mother's a violinist, a professional violinist, and she was in the symphony there. And my dad is a he does all kinds of other things, but um since retired. So I took after my mom and at seven years old six years old, she bought me my first album of my own, which is a Beatles album, because I'm old enough that they were still together. And uh, so that blew my mind and set me on a course. The rest doesn't really matter. I did all the high school stuff. Yeah, played violin until I was about 16 and started guitar on my own, teaching myself, I think around 12. And, uh, And started forming bands with my friends, we listened to Bowie and New York Dolls and Kiss and prog rock and anything that came along and tried to figure out how it worked. And uh, after that, I went to university, but I knew that I was just going to be a musician anyway and uh, played in bands around Vancouver. Eventually, I recognized the kind of outlier in all these other bands that I found quite talented and we all ended up in the same band together and that's odds and um i didn't really do anything good before that so i won't bring it up but it's out there if you go looking hard enough (laughs) but but please don't bother Uh, (laughs) it just it just makes the five records that we made i made before uh, like that's not five records that's one record, but there's only five copies. Um, it just <laughs> okay. makes it just makes it more valuable. I've got one of those too, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, and and we, yeah, that's my background. Awesome. It's funny. There's there sounds like a bit of a parallel experience there. Like obviously with the Sloan guys, like kind of intersecting at university more so, and kind of putting things together there and just afterward. Um, oh, we didn't we didn't meet in university, Pat. 
and Doug and the odds, Pat Stewart and Doug Elliott were at music school together on Vancouver Island and they met at 18. I, I went to university for something else. I didn't meet any of them there. I met them in the, just in the clubs because hanging out in Vancouver, going to see other bands and they were all in bands that I liked and, uh, or were somebody I thought, Hey, that's the weird guy. I want to be in a band with him. Awesome. And I have to give it up for Pat because, uh, I'm a drummer myself and just, I love to give a shout out whenever I can to extremely talented and powerful drummers. They don't come along every day. So, um, you know, well, look at, look at Andrew. You can't have a band, a good band without one. Yeah, absolutely. And so you guys are going to have, you have that in common as well. And obviously, you know, the Mm -hmm. other things that we'll get into, but, um, yeah, cool. So, um, how aware were you on the West coast of sort of the general Canadian music scene? Like, were you exposed to it? early like were you guys touring right out of the box or was it more of um an awareness from what was on tv on the radio like were you guys aware of what was happening kind of in toronto and out east and that kind of thing yeah i guess sure i mean we got together in 1987 and Mm. um started played our first gig in around november 87 and there we were it was a slightly different lineup at the time but i was just electrified by punk rock earlier and and um, post-punk and indie music in Vancouver specifically because there was Art Bergman, there was the Pointed Sticks, there was DOA, and there was, there was terrifyingly good bands. And mm. it sort of proved to you that you could, could do that or be that and come from this place. And, um, of course, lots of bands come here because it's the one stop on the West coast that's got a, you know, a couple million people. So everybody was coming here and I was getting out of high school and, um, into, into university. And I started working for a band called at the time, Brandon Wolf, and they became Barney Bentall and the legendary hearts. And I was the guitar tech. So, Wow. I started working for them when I was 18 and they became my chums and mentors and they got the very first Tascam Porta studio. So people would come in and out of town and they were kind of well-respected the payolas. There was a bunch of bands in that scene later spirit of the West where we were all friends mm-hmm. and uh, hanging out and helping each other out. You know, we'd show up at each other's gigs band called Rhythm Mission that my friend Scott Harding was in. He became a big producer and hip-hop guy in New York later, but it was a really thriving scene. SNFU would come to town, the Edmonton bands, Calgary bands, um, and yeah, of course, Toronto artists. Was there a show or shows that you recall that sort of really blew your mind and kind of was maybe more a little bit set apart from the others. Like obviously you're playing with your, uh, you know, the community, but mm-hmm. was there somebody who came through town or somebody locally that was just like blew your mind? It was like, okay, like, yeah, like this I, has got me sort of really inspired maybe. For sure. It would be art bird. It was, mm-hmm. uh, I, I love the pointed sticks the most as far as music goes. And later, um, Nick's band, the thin men and different bands that he would have. Modernettes were great, but, but Art Bourbon blew my mind. I remember the gig just going, this is, it was a kind of an antagonistic uh, relationship with the audience that night. It was a pretty suburban audience for Art. And um, he kind of took it out on them and just mm-hmm. gave it max. And his guitar his, he was just on fire. And I, I remember, like I said before, you're looking at somebody and you're saying, that person lives in my town and I could, I don't know if I'm that person, but I shouldn't be afraid to try. Yeah. Awesome. So correct me if I'm wrong. Odds released their first studio LP in 91, right? And 
I, I found an interesting parallel. I was unaware of this until doing research for this episode, but your 93 album, uh, Bed Bugs, Jim Rondinelli, sorry, Jim Rondinelli produced that album. He would later, the next year, go on to produce Sloan's Twice Removed. Mm-hmm. Could you describe what, what was it like working with Jim? Was he hands-on? Was he hands-off? How, how was his sort of creative input into that album? Because it really does have couple of bangers in it uh staples on the on the on the can rock radio yeah um we met jim through matthew sweet and um we were on a label called zoo back when there were labels and uh they they um were an indie label created by a major label because people looked at sub pop and things that were going on and thought oh we'll just make our own indie label, but <laughs> it was made by BMG, which is a big, at that time, a big label. And Matthew was on that label with us and kind of kindred spirits. So we did shows together and um, he, Jim had done Matthew's girlfriend album. Right. And so we played a show with Matthew in New York and Jim was mixing the show and we didn't know that was him. And I thought, this show sounds fantastic. <laughs> Just went back and talked to him, and I figured out, oh, you made this record. That's why it sounds so good. And um, so when it came time, you know, and back in those days, the label would say, who do you want to work on your record? And we went and did interviews with a whole bunch of big-name producers for that second record. That was our second album because they'd already lost tons of money on our first record. They didn't want to do it again. <laughs> so uh, we went and did an in- interviews, and it just ended up that we felt Jim was kind of somebody who could be in the band with us, because mm-hmm. we all were very independent, and we we didn't want our control taken away with what we wanted to do with music. So in the end, we kind of crushed Jim's Jim's life because <laughs> it was, uh, you know, we said, okay, you're in, but you're just part of this thing. You're not going to tell us what to do. And he did a really good job at that. He didn't really realize <laughs> how it would feel though till the end. It's a fantastic sounding record. Um, well, he's, the- he's an amazing engineer. For, yeah, totally. How aware at this point in time, this is 93. I'm yeah. Well, we made so, it in 92. Okay. Nine, yeah. Into, and it was released in 93. Right. So you're West coast based. How aware were you at this time of sort of this fledgling thing happening on the East coast with Sloan and, and, and the bands adjacent to them? Uh, the first thing I heard was smeared. You know, I right. didn't hear anything prior to that and I didn't, the bands adjacent to them. I learned about through them really. And I learned about through their hard work out there, getting giving those bands a voice. Yeah. How did that first contact happen? Like, did bands collide? Were you playing, you know, common shows? Were there were there were there mutual acquaintances, or did you get to know the band later on? I I met Patrick at one of our early shows at the what's it called the Marquee in. They call it the marquee, yeah, in yeah. Um, in Halifax, and he came to the show, and then he ended up backstage, and we were just saying how much we loved their record, and had seven thousand beers, and that was when I met <laughs> when I met Patrick. <laughs> I think that was that was around bed bugs, maybe, yeah, okay, yeah, it was, and um, so we kind of kept in touch, or at least I had his email. If there was email then, I can't remember. Somehow I had his contact and, um, and then I got, I was, my, my gal and I were having a baby and we needed somebody cause we had a stretch of shows and, um, we needed somebody to fill in for me just in case something happened and I had to go home. And so I asked Patrick and he said, no, no, <laughs> <laughs> no he said he was busy. He, he was right. busy. So. Classic Patrick move. But. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> he, he was busy. He was very polite and uh, gracious about it. And then, and I talked to him about it still to this day. And he goes, I don't remember that. You really did? You asked me? <laughs> I was just going to say, Patrick, when we spoke to him about 
it's been almost two years since we did an interview with him for this. But uh, I remember in that, he, I remember he had at least one or two bands that he mentioned name checked. He's like, oh, yeah, I was asked. I think it was maybe the Doughboys he was asked to join mm-hmm. as well at one point um, when Sloan were kind of on the outs. But uh, so anyway. <laughs> oh, did he, did he mention that I asked him? No, I remember. I remember him talking. I think we were talking about the Doughboys anyway, so he mentioned that. But uh, so it's it's funny. The list uh, the list is growing now of bands that have asked him to join them. Uh, you yeah. know, not officially, obviously, but just as like a as a fill in. Yeah, yeah. He he got the first call, and then uh, um, eventually, Glenn from the Bloody Chicklets did it, and I think mm-hmm. he had a lot of fun because they were opening for us at the time. So he did actually end up replacing you for a period there? Or? Glenn did, like, yeah. Yeah, he, yeah, he took yeah, your he, life. He, he did like two or three shows because I had to go home. And uh, usually in our band, it's like all hands on deck. So much, how many words do you know to that song that he sings? And we just figure it out. It's funny, you know, in preparation for this episode, first of all, the, the what we've just talked about around Can Rock – and I don't want to overuse that term, but, you know, the Canadian music scene really kind of being a village. I have this romantic image in my head of, you know, everybody kind of knows everybody anyways, because, you know, it's, although it's geographically quite a large country, it, I feel like the scene is quite, uh, quite tightly knit. How does a band like Odds kind of stay in touch with a band like Sloan over the years? Does that happen mostly on tour? Do you befriend people? Does Is that just a romantic notion that fans might have in their heads? Because eventually, like, your paths ended up colliding again later on in your careers, right? Oh, yeah. I think, I think it came – it's funny. It's even more Canadian than that. I think the connection happened again because of hockey. You know, right. it's right. like I play hockey, Doug – Doug in the band plays hockey and there's these Juno cups and Andrew's right. good. And, and Murph plays, he's puts on the Jofa. And, um, and so we just had a lot of fun, you know, and then you're standing in the lineup to go on the ice and you start talking about music and, and yeah. whatever else. So when those games started happening, then we, we, you're kind of thrust together in a different environment. Hmm. And, uh, then the Exclaim Cup happened, and our team went out there from Vancouver, and that's a riot. And, um, you know, you're going to run into Chris Murphy at some point. <laughs> now, is this where the Exclaim Cup, is that where not only hockey is played, but there also has to be some sort of musical performance with the team? Like, uh, yeah. were, you on, were you in the band with those guys, or w- 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 how was your band oriented, and what uh, was your angle? Because I know they'd done um, – I think they did Chris's Black ABBA one year, like the yep. Black Sabbath ABBA cover band. Yeah. And they did Andrew Lloyd Webber's Stray Cats. That's right. Yeah. And they did a, <laughs> they did a Shauna Noth sort of thing. Uh, ours, ours was so thrown together. We did on that year we, that, that I remember hanging out with Chris a bunch. Uh, we did um, Stars on 45 Cowbell Rock. So we had... <laughs> Only cowbell songs, and the cowbell was at the same tempo and just kept going. And we didn't, <laughs> we did the entire set with that. <laughs> that sounds incredible. Yeah, uh, you w- or, you or, wish or, that these things existed somewhere, like in the ether, like online or something. But there, it's in my body. It's all yeah. inside me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was going to say our American listeners are going to feel very vindicated in, in, in their sort of stereotypical uh, yes. imagination of what Canadian musicians are like. But all we did uh, that we're not- just pounding maple syrup and vodka the whole night. <laughs> crazy. <laughs> so before, before we move on to more serious questions, I have to get this one out of the way. Who has the better wrist shot, Craig Northey or Andrew Scott? Oh, Andrew's a way better player than I am. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'll just I'll he's... just go right there. <laughs> <laughs> a man a man of I'll, many talents. Ho- hopefully he disagrees with you when you ask him. <laughs> okay. Well we'll follow up. We'll insert the clip uh of us asking Andrew right here. Those guys have ten ten years age advantage on me, so there you go. I'm, right. <laughs> I've slowed down, but I'm wily and I play dirty. <laughs> so if I may, I want to pivot to Back to odds, back to songwriting, back to sort of Craig Northey's solo work. 
And I, I was re-listening the uh, to to the catalogs in in preparation for this episode, and you know, I was really remarking, oh yeah, uh, know this song, know this song, know this song. Uh, and this is coming from an admittedly sort of casual fan uh, in comparison to my fandom for, for Sloan. And there's something about the way in which you write music that makes the songs feel timeless. Rob and I were talking about this before the episode. It's like it's as though the songs have always existed. They've always been there. And for, mm. you know, for someone who grew up with Canadian rock radio, it just it, it it's part of the pantheon of, you know, songs that, you know, um, and one quality that I that I discovered that I you know really admire about this is is this ability to if you if you listen to the song two or three times you you know the words it's 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 easy and accessible to to get into your lyrics. Can you take us a little bit into your songwriting process and specifically into like how you shape texts around music? Well, firstly, thank you. That, that's an amazing thing to say. Um, and I, cause, because I appreciate that as a compliment, I, I suppose I, some people, if you weren't going for that, then you wouldn't take it as a compliment. But I think the, I think that's a thing that we have in common with Sloan in terms of the timeless nature, because at the time we weren't making music, recording music the same way that other people were uh, in the early odds. And uh, we didn't feel like, the tyranny of the snare drum and the big reverb gated things. You're a drummer. You understand what eighties production was. And we were coming out of that and we just wanted it to um, sound like the music that we loved, which may have been 20 years before that. It may have been 10 years before that. It may have been in the thirties. We, we wanted it to, to project itself rather than be dominated by what the modern production was. So I think it was a little drier, <clears throat> and I appreciated that a lot when I heard Sloan, mm. because it wasn't about uh, fidelity. It was about the melding together of the elements and, um, and in an, I suppose, organic way. So I think we, we tended towards some of the same instincts in in that we didn't want to be defined by our times. We just wanted to make the music that came through us that, that we liked. Um, and I always listened to AM radio as a kid. I always listened to songs that were hooky and I loved the Beatles and I loved the who, and I loved the earworms. So I think they just become part of what you incorporate into a song. You want it to be, I suppose I want it to be memorable but I just also think it's it's an instinct. It's a thing that becomes part of you by reason of what you listen to. And uh, how combining the text and the words, I always felt because growing up with the Beatles and their transition from homogenous, identically suited people with the same haircuts into what they became at the end after taking the tea and, you know, religious, spiritual, anti-war, getting involved in politics, getting involved in shaping the community around them, um, social conscience, those kind of things in music. I always was listening to the words. I was always listening to it and reading books, you know, <laughs> and stealing right. from books. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it. It. I think the end result is a formula that, if I may, you know, is kind of an undeniable element of everything that I hear when I when I listen to to your music. Recently, and I, I will name drop a couple of your of your projects here for listeners to check out if they're not as intimately familiar um, with uh, with your work. You know, listening to uh, Strippers Union, for example, your work with Rob Baker, there's there's a thread, there's a common thread in the stylings there to uh, your work with Odds, um, and also you know listening to to your to your solo work, um, the stuff that came out in in the early two thousands, it's it's all there, and I think that um, you know happily as I checked out the new singles that you've been dropping in as as a preview to the album that's coming out in August, um, that formula is 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 still quite present there. Could you maybe take us through 
how this album is taking shape, what fans of you know a band like Sloan should be interested in uh, with this album dropping in in, in August. Oh, I I think we when you talk to people, often they group our band with Sloan in some sort of reference, and I okay. think it just uh, so I could say. Uh, what's the algorithm say? If you like like this one, you maybe you will like this, that ki- that kind of thing. I'll say it. I'm not an algorithm, but I'll just say it. I think um, there's a commonality because we have in Oz a very dark sense of humor in, in everything we do. It's um, it's just existential angst exhibited that way. You know, it's uh, it's. Um, Early on, we were the, a band just by fluke for with Warren Zevon in, in our early life, and it was a, he was a mentor. But more than that, I was such a huge fan in high school because when I heard it, I thought, "I think that way. That is hilarious. <laughs> that is right. that's that's how I feel about the world in a way." And um, so, I think you can hear that in so much stuff that. Um, Chris or Jay or Andrew or Patrick Wright, you can hear those same kind of places. Maybe it's the Vancouver Halifax thing. I don't know, just stuck on the ends of the country on the water and both facing two different directions. I don't know. Um, But I think with this record, we try every time we do something to make the best one we can and to do something different and create a new rule for what we're doing each time we make an album. And this one was a a slow one burning. It sat there with half finished pieces and all kinds of stuff. And um, as we got older as a band, it became harder to just sort of be the hard days and night Beatles going into our doors on matching row houses and living together you know you have children you have all those kinds of things so getting together is harder and there's all that stuff you do by the internet and some of us don't live in the same place uh so um it became kind of fragmented but just before covid we were able to get together and go over all the pieces that we had um because we don't write the same way that sloan does where they go into their corners each guy comes up with some songs and they come together and put those songs together. We like to get together and bring almost unformed pieces or pieces that we know we've left something open for the other guys to put their creative stamp on. So there's a bit more, it's just a different way of doing it. And so we had to get together. We finally got together, melded all these things and realized we had a lot of stuff. And then I start whittling away lyrically. And I guess we took some of the, I mean, you kind of define yourself as two guitars, bass and drums for so many years. And you think that's what you are. And and on this record, you'll hear that there aren't even any guitars on a couple songs. There's a lot of orchestral elements. There's whatever the song called for whatever was imagined. And um, the singles that have come out so far have been those, this, this, that's your two guitars, bass and drums. And you could play them live with those four people. But um, Elm goes a lot of places. <laughs> so it'll be fun for everyone to hear. Yeah, I enjoyed getting a sneak preview of it. Thank you very much for that again. <clears throat> I was going to sort of answer Ken's question for you as well, sort of from the outsider perspective. And my take on it is, uh, you know, for people who are into Sloan regarding the new Odds album, um, in both cases, you have bands that are like 30 plus years into their career, essentially putting out music that, you know, I think in when you talk about just other regular bands or whatever, there are a lot of bands out there who are kind of just resting on former fame or they just sort of play big shows and kind of play their hits from back in the day. But in both cases, and Ken and I have talked a lot about this on the show about the new Sloan record, is it's just criminally great for a band who've been around this long to have such fantastic new material. The same for you guys as well, I would suggest. And um, uh, as much as there are elements in there 
uh, that are timeless, like you were saying, I think the, the commonality there as well is musically timeless. Um, but there are some treats in there, like you said, I think I like some pretty heavy duty synth in there as well. And uh, mm-hmm. that's what it sounded like to me. Um, so yeah, really refreshing to hear something that is new, fantastic songwriting, but also kind of has a familiarity about it as well. That yeah. I, <laughs> thank, thank you. I think there's some things that are indelibly us, which is our, our voices and right. uh, things I was talking about earlier, the, the, the harmonic ideas that we've internalized, they come out. You can't stop yeah. them. And I think if you're trying to stop them, it just sounds constipated. It sounds like you're inventing something that shouldn't exist. <laughs> you got to stick with what's soulful to you. And, uh, and I think that Sloan is the same as we are in that none of us felt like our former fame, as you said it, which seems funny to say, <laughs> means anything. It doesn't mean shit. You know, like we just want to make cool music and hang around with each other. And, um, totally. and that's one of the things I just appreciate so much. And it's one of the things why the Highwaymen exist is that um, we love being in bands and being in a band is a cool thing. And it's a, something to respect and something to, it's not easy. It's not, it's not easy to do. And each of us in the Highwaymen understand that because we've, we've, we're old friends and we've sort of lived it. Maybe we could talk about that for a second. You you transitioned perfectly for me. And speaking of hanging around, um, you know, band relationships and dynamics can at times not be the easiest or whatever. I'm curious about how the Highwaymen kind of came together and the dynamic of essentially four lead, not only lead singers, but essentially leaders of their individual bands in a way, if you think about it. Like, I really feel like, I think I picture Chris as being sort of the wrangler or the one to kind of initiate a project or, you know, I don't know if it's entirely that way for you uh, in odds, but, um, you know, coming into a situation with those other three guys, um, how does that begin is my, is my curiosity. And I'm charmed by the idea of the four of you sort of being together and that dynamic is clearly you're having a ton of fun. It's not a thing where guys are just like butting heads or whatever. So I think we, Steven and Chris and I came together trying to form the Mo Berg fan club. <laughs> like, like we just wanted to be in a band with Mo Berg. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. um, he, uh, we, we sort of, uh, we've all known each other for a long time and, how did it come about? It actually came about with, I had, we had, I think all of us have asked Mo to come out and open for us at some point. And he said, I don't know, because there wasn't really a pursuit happening at the time. And, um, and then he, then um, Chris and I and Steven, I think had talked about, should we do something together? Like just a songwriter thing and do a little tour and Mo was talking to our, uh, I, I do some stuff. I do, I have a side gig that I've been doing since the mid nineties as a composer for TV and film and comedy. And, uh, I, uh, one of the directors was a guy named Jim Milan, brilliant director who worked on the kids in the hall live shows that I was on a couple tours with them. And Jim was the director and Jim's a friend of Mo's. And Jim said to Mo, I have this idea, you know, that you and your friends do this interactive thing or storytellers kind of idea with about your life and combined forces. And uh, so Mo talked to Chris about it. And Chris said, well, I was talking to Craig and, and Stephen about this. You know, it's like the Reese's peanut butter cup. The chocolate met the peanut butter, and then it was a delicious taste. So we did it that way. We did it with Jim, and it was initially we would do a whole bunch of interviews, and uh, which was no fun at all with Jim, you know, and uh, answer questions and make um, go into our archives and get photos and things like that. And we would piece together a show for theaters where we would talk about being in our in bands and then play our songs together. And um, 
we did a tour doing it that way, but we also did just plain old live festival shows. And it worked both ways. So mm-hmm. it continues. I hear you on the Moberg thing. Like I, I just moved uh, last year, but I was uh, previously right downtown Toronto, right on Bloor Street. And he must live in that area somewhere because I would see him like every day on the sidewalk. And I was constantly blown away every day. I'm like, there's Moberg. Like he's just walking on the sidewalk. Like, and he would always be like, I, he doesn't really know me at all. Like he would know me from the neighborhood, but he'd always give you like a knowing, like, Hey, you know, like super friendly guy, like insane. Mm-hmm. So I hear you on the wanting to be in a band with that guy. Cause he's a legend, but, um, um, so how do I mean, obviously, uh, I, I guess, is it Steven who plays drums when Chris comes to play lead? Uh, Steve, we've all, we eventually got Mo to play drums too. It's pretty good. <laughs> but I was going to say, how does that, how, how do you orient all that? Yeah, I play drums somewhat. It's, uh, um, <laughs> we just forced ourselves to do it. I don't think right. the three of us ever really played drums seriously but i did practice a lot in order to do the first gigs and it's it's a really funny thing because we we just wreck chris's songs (laughs) (laughs) we all try and uh it's it's just fun you know so bass and guitars and and steven's the only one who plays keys very well i'm sure i think chris can play pretty well I can yeah. do it, but I just do it to pick through it. Awesome. So, what is it? What if it? What's it like to be a fly on the wall in the you know uh, backstage in the dressing room or whatever at a uh, Trans Canada High Women show? Is it? I, I, I imagine the dynamic is quite a bit different than it is being backstage at an odd show or at a Sloan show. I don't find it that different than the backstage in an odds show. Okay. Um, but yeah, I don't find it crazy different because Steven, uh, I've been playing with Steven for years now and we've been friends for 30 years. And, um, he, that's why he's a co-producer on this record on the new odds okay. record is because he has a window on being an odds fan that we don't have. He has a window right. on, how we make music and have interacted and he's watched it for so long that he, he was able, we finally just said, why don't you just tell us what's good and what's not about what's going on here? And he said, really? I said, yeah. So he, you know, we usually like, as I was talking about poor Jim Rondinelli, we usually destroy anyone who tries to, to indicate what we should or shouldn't do because <laughs> uh, we're very independent, but but in a fun way, we destroy people in a fun way sometimes. But uh, we'd actually worked with Stephen, and uh, we'd all played on his last couple of records. And um, so he knew what it was like to be in the band with us. Hmm. And uh, so I think he'd probably say the same thing. It's not that different. But I think it's uh, same with Strippers Union, which is a lot of odds and, and sometimes hip people. It's about saying, well, that's funny, but what about this? You know, it's like upping the ante. So it's not gamesmanship with humor. It's just rolling constantly. Right. We do end up getting the job done eventually. So you you mentioned the hip and you mentioned Rob Baker and you've collaborated frequently with with him. Mm -hmm. Maybe take us back again to early, mid-90s, you were on the roadside attraction tour with, with the hip. Is that correct? Uh, almost. Uh, we were, I think on a couple of those shows, but we did a tour with change of heart odds and the hip across Canada in 95, I think, um, uh, for their album day for night. And so we did, uh, all the hockey arenas with those three bands. So what's it like being in odds and, and, you know, appearing in front of 20,000 hip fans? Like how does that dynamic looking back, how does that dynamic differ from sort of your, I guess, typical, uh, typical touring experience nowadays? And, and, and what do you take away from that? Oh, that, well, like, like those guys, bare naked ladies and 
the, the group of chums that we developed over the years, and they're not all Canadian bands. Gin Blossoms were a big part of our sure. career too. People we met when we were young, you know, and um, and then we liked each other's bands. So if one person got a leg up, they said, hey, come on, you guys, come with us. And all those bands, um, Junk House, I mean, you know, Sloan, we didn't really do a gig with until, or a festival gig until like 2001 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they would all, we all do that for each other. And I think it's uh, when they did that, when the hip took us on that tour, things were kind of working for us musically. And then much music was a thing. And then we made mm-hmm. some kooky videos and, they took us on tour and them taking us out at that point was really instrumental in the, that record doing really well. Same with Bare Naked Ladies. Right after that, we just went to colleges with them in the States and um, couldn't believe what was happening. How many people, there's thousands of people there in these colleges every night. And in Canada, nobody was just paying any attention. And then of course they exploded soon after mm-hmm. that. But, Gin Blossom, same thing, colleges over and over. So what was it like? It would have been nice if we could have done that more for them. (laughs) But maybe one day, maybe one day. Awesome. So coming up to present day, you're balancing all these different projects, uh, new odds album on the horizon. And I mentioned it earlier, the Crash the Time Machine title I'm, I'm uh, charmed by. And uh, maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Is it t- just to me, it seems like I- I'm sort of like into nostalgia and sort of like wanting to look back and that kind of thing. But for you, is it more of a, are we crashing it to avoid going back and thinking or going for- too far forward? Do you have a take on that at all? Sure. Uh, I I would say it's, Let's use a Sloan quote. It's magical thinking to think <laughs> to think that things were better before. Right. And that's sure. basically what the title refers to is, you know, in recent history, we know there's an opportunity here to do things differently. And um, I think that's both the uh, – it's a simple way of putting it. And I think uh, what you were saying, Ken, earlier – Rung a, struck a chord with me in that you you hear our music and you you can remember the words and it seems like it's been around a long time. I think it's because there's an I work we work for an economy of style and sure I, it's hard with big issues to use an economy of style because you mm-hmm. want to jam a bunch of words in there to describe how you're feeling if you're feeling terrible about something and if it's an environmental thing or a political thing or a social justice thing you don't want to oversimplify it but it's basically this maga kind of stuff um it's just drawing us you know simple Mm. (laughs) you know that's that's and it's the one song on the record that's pretty nail on the head that way. Hmm. But uh, we've always had those things in our music. You just have to go to the third level. Just keep listening. So listening back and going back in time musically and all those kind of things, that's not not a bad thing. That's just (laughs) just, just discovering the soulful elements of what's already happened. That's where you get good ideas. So what are what are your plans for uh, after the album is released? Are you do you have tours slated? Uh, what can what can Odds fans and Sloan fans look forward to uh, in the next several months from from you? We've got gigs planned through the summer festival things. In fact, we're doing one with Sloan and Chicks Dig It, who I love, and Fifty Four Forty, who are great in. Um, in Ben Goff, Saskatchewan for the Gateway Festival. That's awesome. in July. And um, it's been, a, you know, we've got those things up. I've got some gigs with the Stephen Page Trio with Stephen and Kevin Fox that I've been playing with for years. We've got gigs through the summer. And uh, 
We've got plans for the Highwaymen, which I'm sure you might know about. I, uh, I admittedly don't have the inside track on that, but that's awesome <clears throat> as well. I'll just, I'll just say we've got plans then. Now that I've felt okay. it out, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna blow it. <laughs> cool. Yeah, no need to blow it. There's a bunch of stuff. Yeah, it's exciting. It's a, it's a bit of a renaissance time for everybody. I hope because I steady is such a great record, and I know that the Sloan. I'm really excited for them because I think they had a great tour, and yeah, it's a great album. Yeah, that's been the word, and we were talking to Chris about that a couple episodes ago about how that is how that's actually happened. Because in a way, I mean, there's no reason for it not to. You know, they've got songs on the radio now, and the record's really great. And but he was remarking about how they've played to some of the biggest crowds they've seen since the 90s, I guess. And and what may have caused that? Would it have been like the lockdown? People are kind of being pulled back and now shot forward so much. Um, but I like to think of it as just, uh, you know, kind of what you were getting to there, which is just people appreciate something that's great. And they're excited to, you know, get back out there and support something that's awesome. And hey, um, the Sloan guys work so hard at the, you know, there's the art, this sort of arc of doing the archival record and Murph is so good at the um being an archivist for the band. Yeah. Um our band has as I think it might have been him who coined the term has a broken history. <laughs> so it's hard it's harder with these different labels we were on um and a couple different members and taking a hiatus and ruining all our momentum because none of us to be quite frank care about marketing or know anything about it and so we we didn't really work very hard at it we didn't know how to have an image (laughs) we just knew wanted to make the music that we liked and hoped that uh, people wouldn't be annoyed by our personalities (laughs) so so i think what's great about sloan is they're they've they have great fans they have great people that really connect with them and it's snowballing right now which is really cool well i i would i would claim and this is something you know we've we have a fair portion of our listeners who are from south of the border or from across the the ocean as uh as i am and you know i would i would claim that uh there's a generosity in the sloan fan community as well to uh to other other bands within the peripheral universe mm-hmm. and so i would encourage listeners who do not know craig northey's work in odds uh or some of his his side projects um if i if i may say that at odds being the main project and, no, and it, it, i'm i'm i am me and then we are we and we're all together there it is uh to absolutely check out uh their back catalog as well as the the snippets of the new album that you can listen to now uh on streaming services they're fantastic i love fall guy i love the fact that you're injecting a little bit of prog a little bit of the a little bit of the more dramatic elements of, of rock into this long number it's fantastic um so if you don't know odds and if you like sloan check them out just great overlapping canons and and really a lot of interesting parallels in the stories between the two bands yeah i think that fall guy is just us finally stealing something just so overtly from stone sloan and it's just that commonwealth like we have to make a long song we have to make a really long song (laughs) doesn't have to sound anything like sloan but it's got to be just as long as one of those songs Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. That was was a lot of fucking work. (laughs) Way to set the bar. And I think it was a lot of work for him, too. I don't know that you would ever do that again. But uh, speaking of of just points of interest here, you mentioned it earlier, and I've been staring at this poster over your shoulder the whole time. Uh, You mentioned it earlier. Any sort of story there? It looks like, is that uh, Janine Garofalo I see? Yeah. So... That was a show at the Wiltern in Los Angeles with all those people, kids in the hall. Oh, I see. Janine, Mr. Showcast, and Triumph the Insult comic dog. Jesus. So it was Robert Smigel's baby, um, and uh, that's the poster. Anyway, it was was a benefit, and I was in the band for the show with – Evan Schleder 
and uh, Mark Rivers. And Mark did the music for Mr. Show, or he did the theme. Yeah. He was playing drums. And Eben, uh was, he's done Mr. Show, and he does SpongeBob. He did SpongeBob songs, some of the great tunes. And um, he's had a long career making music for different people in comedy too, like me. So it was a really fun night. And um, that's what that was, that all those people were there. And, and now that we've sort of interjected comedy into the conversation, I have to ask, um, you know, fans of the show will know that, that Chris is like, like a big comedy guy and uh, he, he exercises some of his routines during the Sloan shows, which is always awesome. Uh, but he's just a, a general comedy fan, you know, straight up. Mm-hmm. So um, do you have anybody who you're super in love with comedy wise, or do you have any sort of similarities with Chris in that regard? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, well, my, of course my favorites I have to say are Brent, Butt. I think is the best Canadian stand-up, to, not to exclude my pals and the kids in the hall who all do it now. But yeah. uh, those are the people I've worked with for decades as a composer and collaborator. So mm-hmm. those are my favorites. Um, man, there's – I don't know. I'm not going to go into a list of my, my comedy faves, but uh, at this point, let's let Chris say them. And mine are probably the same. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's a feature episode, the Chris Murphy comedy episode. <clears throat> where we just we go deep. Yeah, and, and Goose is a Goose is good at that stuff too. And percent. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Goose is a Vancouverite as well. So Amazing, sir. Well, uh, we don't want to keep you on we want to respect your time, but this has been an awesome treat to get to chat with you. And uh yeah, thanks for doing this. <laughs> Well, thank you for having me. I'm sorry about the technical glitches, and I look forward to your visual effects. What technical glitches? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I look forward to the pain of editing this. Oh, <laughs> It'll all be on, is, Ken. I'm going to sit back and have a drink and watch TV. Okay. Yeah, uh, progress, not perfection, right? Well, thank you for having me. A complete pleasure, sir. Um, but uh, yeah, it'll be uh, everybody obviously very much looking forward to August 4th, Crash the Time Machine, the new record from Odds. And we want to thank again Craig Northy for joining us on Sloancast. We will see you, listener, next time right here on Sloancast. Yeah.